Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. On this episode, I spoke with curator and musician Jonathan Levine of Jonathan Levine Projects. Oddly enough, we were both based out of Rutherford, New Jersey. Enjoy. This us just talking. I mean, you know, you gotta do a proper reference to beginning, don't you? No, no, no. I like it very casual. All right. So, what was I asking you? My name's Jonathan Levine. I live here in Rutherford, New Jersey. Yeah. What do you do? What do I do? I mostly sell art for a living. Mostly. Mostly. Still. Yeah, you know, I kind of consider myself a creative entrepreneur. That's what I call myself these days. Uh, Or an arts entrepreneur, I guess. I don't really, yeah, I work in the arts, the visual arts as an entrepreneur in a variety of capacities. A variety of capacities. As you know, although podcast, yeah, Podlandia. Yeah, yeah. Is that what we're calling it? Yeah. Out in Podland, podcast world. Uh Uh-huh. Don't know, but I used to own an art gallery. Jonathan Levine. Jonathan Levine Gallery. gallery. Uh, I owned it for 18 years, but at one point it was called Tin Man Alley, and that was in New Hope in Philadelphia. Then it was Jonathan Levine Gallery in New York, and that was in New York for 12 years, and it was in Jersey City for three years, but I changed the name to Jonathan Levine Projects. Why'd you change the name? Um... Because I knew that the industry was changing and I didn't want to be locked down until like this idea of like just that we just were whatever people's perception was of the gallery. It sort of gave us more freedom. And that is still what my business is under. It's Jonathan Line Projects. That is my business. So there was three different names, three chapters. Yes. Right? Yes, there was three chapters. So what was the first chapter? The first chapter, you don't know anything at any of this about me, do you? Um, no, I do to a certain degree. Um, I know the aesthetic. So the first chapter, there's actually four chapters. There's a fourth, there's a pre, would it be like uh, Star What's the one before Star Wars? The prequel? There's three prequels, yeah. Yeah, the, well, there was a prequel. The Phantom Menace? Yeah, uh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not. I don't really. Yeah, know why. that's a nine. That's a nine part. I've seen all the Star Wars movies, but I'm not like a total Star Wars. Yeah, movie. I am, but it, it's anyway, nine chapters. There's a prequel. Yeah, and the prequel was for from about 1994 to 2001. That's when I opened my first gallery called Tin Man Alley, which was in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Uh, prior to me opening that, I was an independent curator, predominantly in New York City. And I used to curate mostly at CBGB's gallery. Really? I didn't know they had a gallery. They did. They had a place next to the club mm-hmm. called 313 Gallery. And it was actually larger than CBGB's. And it was two floors. And during the day, it was a gallery. And it was giant. 
it's like 4,000 square feet. And then downstairs was giant. And there was another bar and they used to make pizza. And that's a whole other conversation about the CBGBs. But um, in Hilly, Crystal, who was the owner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would cure, I didn't cure, I curated about five shows a year there at, over a period of time. And during the day it was a gallery. And then at night they'd have bands play, but it was, or, or they'd have parties, but usually the bands would be acoustic. They wouldn't be like next door, like punk rock bands and rock bands and things like that. Yeah. So I curated out of there for a long time. I also curated other, I used to curate out of uh, Maxwell's in Hoboken. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to curate out of occasionally at Max Fish on Ludlow Street, which is no longer around. Just these sort of alternative spaces because I was in my mid 20s, mid to late 20s, and I had no money, and that's what I had access to. And I was showing work that was, um, not particularly wasn't mainstream. It was super underground and I had no money. So like, that's what was available to me. Were you making art or you've never made art? No, I have an art degree. I've got two art degrees. In what? Uh, I have a degree from Montclair state in sculpture. Mm -hmm. And this is interesting. You know me for a long time. You don't know much about me. And I also have a degree in graphic design. Mm. Um, and I was making art up until I was about 30. Um, and I would just, I sort of made work similar to what I show at my, I ended up showing at my gallery though. I'd venture to say I was a good crafts artist. I was an okay artist. I also drew comics, which I wasn't particularly good at, but I liked doing it. Um, that's why when I came, when I first met you and you were selling comics and I was like, oh, cool. You know, yeah, I, kinda, yeah. I, I knew about that scene. And, uh, you know, it's just something at the time, all through my 30, my 20s, I should say, I played music. You know, I played in a band and I was playing a band then. I played the drums and I was curating art shows and I was making art and I was doing odd jobs, kind of like you. And uh, before I opened my first gallery when I was 32. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, sort of had this pre to opening the gallery. And that was, and at that time, I, a lot of those people, I'm still, I gave Shepard Ferris his first solo show at CBGB's gallery in 1998. Um, so, and I also worked with Ron English there. Do you know his? Yeah. Ron, yeah. Ron English. McDonald's. Known, yeah. I've known Ron since I'm 26 years old. Um, but that's when the scene that I'm involved in, which is like the juxtaposed street art scene was super, super underground. So that was the then 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 i when i was 30 and i was living in jersey city i decided that i didn't want to be a poor starving artist which i was and i moved back to my parents house and i started working at a bagel shop my friends owned a bagel shop and trying to figure out what i was going to do and after doing that for about a year and a half or two years my parents helped me open my first little gallery in this basement in new hope pennsylvania yeah why new hope well basically what happened was mm, trenton is not far from is it's really not that far from new hope and um i was originally trying to start i i sort of my mother and i were my mother was interior she used to be interior decorator not a particularly good one but you know it was her thing her passion and I was kind of like, maybe we can open up a shop for you of like home decor and stuff like that. Mm. So she was kind of, basically she was like, I'll help you open a business, 
In the original Tin Man Alley, my first gallery was like half a toy store, half home decor, and half an art gallery. And I essentially set it up as a partnership with my mother. And she did not, I wanted to go to Philly because I couldn't afford New York. And my plan was like, I'm going back to Trenton. Maybe I'll try to open a gallery in Philly because it's cheaper. It's another, it's a major city. New York is too expensive. I don't come from a wealthy family. I come from a super middle, I work up, I grew up really kind of working class and then we were kind of middle class, you know, but my parents, they don't have any money. And so she's like, well, I hope you do it. We created this agreement and we opened the business and immediately she and I got in a big fight. She wasn't <laughs> in the business anymore. <laughs> well, I was going to say, that's a quite the, to and, go into business with your mother. Yes. You know, my mother's your typical, like, um, boundary, overstepping boundary type Italian American mother. Yeah. And, um, don't get me wrong. I adore her and we have a great relationship, but that just wasn't working. And so that's where I started and it was cheap. It was really cheap. My rent was $500 a month for like 500 square feet. So that's like dirt cheap. And you knew hope it's this big tourist town and half the business was toys. It was collectibles. So like at the time, the art I was showing wasn't selling. Yeah. Like if you came to the gallery back in 2001, 2002, 2003, you could have purchased a Shepherd Ferry or Ron English off of me or a variety of other artists for nothing. Give me a number. Oh, uh, I don't know. Like you could buy a Ron English painting from me back then for $500 and it's worth $5,000 now. Yeah. Uh, you could have come and bought a Shepherd Ferry painting off me back then. For thirty five hundred dollars, it's maybe worth fifty thousand dollars now. Yeah, um, but no one was buying. People the were, work. No, they weren't buying much, and they certainly weren't buying enough for me to make a living off of it. So that's Tin Man Alley. Mm -hmm. And that, how'd you get that name? Well, what happened was, uh, so we're in New Hope, and it's like we're in this this building we were in. It was like an old. It was. It's weird. They somebody built a small office building in New Hope and New Hope's really small and it didn't work. So what they did is they put, they rented different businesses in it. And what was it? There was a tattoo shop. There was an antique store. There was a tarot card place or like that sold that kind of metaphysical type yeah, books yeah. and stuff. Uh, downstairs in the back, there was two spaces. Mine was a space that had no storefront. And the one behind me did have a storefront. They sold Jerry Garcia art. <laughs> right mm -hmm. so but you had to walk down these alleys on both sides to go down these stairs and it was kind of hidden and i was going to call it tin man because i was selling tin robots right that's what i was thinking all these yeah. retro i used to sell a lot of reproduction uh tin toys they sell like 100 different robots you know and my stepfather was like you should call it tin man alley after tin pan alley Right. Tim Pan right. Alley. Do you know what that is? Tim Pan Alley? No, but I know it's a saying of some Tim sort. Pan Alley was like this street where like all the back in the day in the music industry where um people would basically go and get people to write songs for them. They were songwriters, mm -hmm. you know, and they would you know, there's all these a lot of people that became famous did that initially. They would write songs how they and, and there was this one street in New York City. That was all these buildings full, all right, all these writers, and that's Tin Pan Alley. Gotcha. So and I, so what's the transition out of that to Jonathan Levine Gallery? 
Is that right? Yeah. That's the next one. Yeah. You went with the name, your name. Well, what happened was I then moved Tin, Tin Man Alley to Philadelphia and I started doing really well selling work finally after like six years. Mm-hmm. And I was selling less and less of like collectibles and just more and more of expensive paintings and the collectibles were just like, what's the point? It's a lot of work and not a lot of money. In New Hope, it worked really well. In Philadelphia, I was in, Fish- in Northern Liberties, it didn't work. And I was selling paintings for three, four, five thousand dollars. So suddenly, you know, it was like it was a different business. Yeah. And I, my plan had always been to leave, go back to New York. That was always my plan. And I was positioning myself. My dream was to be the, you know, I was trying to push this whole pop surrealism movement. We didn't call it that then. We used to call it lowbrow. And street art wasn't really even such a thing. We were trying to, me and a handful of people were trying to take it to the next level. Like Juxtapose. Yeah. Was Juxtapose out at the time? Yeah, Juxtapose was out. It used to come out quarterly. Okay. All this stuff was very nascent. Like That's what introduced me to that, you know, Juxtapose. That's right. I'm trying to remember Jeff Soto. Jeff Soto, yeah. Yeah. I represented. Yeah. So... Because I probably saw that when I was a teenager, very specifically. What years were you a teenager? Well, it's like 20 years ago. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, and it's like a, it was like a Salvador Dali off-ramp. Or not off-ramp. I mean, it's all- like pop shows and then became yeah. street art. And basically, I have had a, had a very long-running relationship with that magazine and all the editors and the owners and blah, blah, blah. And I eventually- I did become the biggest gallery, the most recognized gallery for that work and for street art basically in the world. That was my goal. That's what I did. Although I had a different idea about it at the time. Yeah, going into it, you mean? Yeah. Because at the time, you know, all this technology was like Facebook wasn't, you know, I mean, I remember when Friendster started in MySpace and, you know, you know, then it was Instagram, just like over a period of time. And there was pros and cons to that. Um, but that changed everything drastically till we're in a completely different landscape. Um, so that was your goal explicitly. That was my explicit goal. I wanted to be the Leo Costelli of the, of that movement. I was seeing it as, do you know who Leo Costelli is? Then no, another name, but I don't know. Leo Costelli was like the art dealer of the sixties who like basically represented like Warhol and okay. and all the pop artists. Yeah. You know, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that in New York city, but I also was like this old school punk rock kid who didn't come from money. So I wanted to be that. I just was like, I didn't really compromise my stuff. So, but you have business acumen and you've had business. Acumen. I, yes. I always had a lot of business acumen. So when you were a child, what did you want to be? Mm. When I was a child, I was probably a lot like you, I imagine. Because I'm a child? No. <laughs> no, no. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> Knowing you, <clears throat> who you have a lot of different interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all around creative. Yeah. Well, that's what I was. You know, when I was growing up, I was like, <clears throat> I wasn't, quite frankly, I was never that good of an artist. I was very creative and I was a maker, but I wasn't good at drawing and that sort of thing. Um, I was always entrepreneurial. So what does that look like when you're a child? For me, I was bouncing all over the place. I mean, I started playing drums when I was six. I was just playing and I was just considered mediocre. 
um, just making stuff. I used to, for me as a child, I was, so my mother, my father uh, left when I was one and he wasn't around at all. And I didn't really know him. I saw him maybe three, four times my whole life. He died when I was 20. Um, and so he wasn't around and my mother was a single mother and she got remarried when I was 12. So from those early years, we lived in this apartment complex in the suburb of Trenton called Ewing. And what that looked like for me as a kid, you know, as a latchkey kid, I go to school, whatever, come home. And I would make stuff. And early on, I was collecting comic books and I was selling seeds door to door and greeting cards. So back in the 70s, you could go into a comic book, you could open up a comic book, Marvel Comics, and it'd be like, hey, kids, you want to make money? This is how it was. You know, they really trusted you. Say they'd send you a box of like, you know, packets of seeds. Seeds. Yeah, seeds like grow tomatoes or all that. Or they would send me boxes of greeting cards. And I literally, because I lived in this big apartment complex, would go around knocking on doors, selling them. And I also started to sew a little and sell my crafts when I would make stuff. And I lived near this, our apartment, the, the court that I lived in was near this pool we had in the apartment complex. And I would go in the garbage can. Let me tell you something. I was telling this to my girlfriend. The biggest party for me was so we have these giant dumpsters was if somebody threw somebody had gotten a refrigerator mm-hmm. and you would get a refrigerator box because they were humongous they're like six feet tall sure. and i'm like two feet tall right yeah. i'm a short ass guy to begin with i was a really short kid and i'd get this box i remember i would put it in front of the house if it was the summer i'd cut a little hole through it and i'd sell like lemonade or little craft stuff i'd make as people walk by to go to the pool Mm-hmm. And then after that, I went that box started to get like beat up. Then I would use it to slide down hills and things like that. But I would go foraging in the garbage for stuff. I was always just making and selling things. There was no direction. And by the time I got to my teens, you know, when I tried to do a little acting and I just kept playing the drums, it came from a family of musicians, like working class. They're blue collar Italian Americans who worked in General Motors and my grandfather and my grandmother. And, you know. Yeah. These were not edgy. These were rough people, wonderful people, but, you know, rough Mm -hmm. people. And, um, you know, I just kind of was like always doing something. I was like ADD. It was like making art, making a poster, setting up. Like I used to set up these little fairs for muscular dystrophy to raise money and make little like do a little carnival for I was just organizing shit I do haunted houses in my house my mother would let me I was just always organizing shit so that's the thing you're best at doing well you have to understand what I but the thing is I what I really wanted to be was either a rock star I wanted to be Ringo Starr because I was a huge Beatles fan why why Ringo specifically because uh I'm a drummer because of Ringo Starr what attracts you to Ringo well when I was about six, my cousin Stephen, who's still really good, my, he's like a very close to me. He's like my brother, Stephen Baldanzi. He's five years older than me. He's a music teacher. He turned me on to the Beatles. He played 45s. This is like 1973, maybe? 1974. And I fell in love with the Beatles. And between me and my brother, by the time I was probably like eight and he was 10, my brother's two, maybe three years older than me, we had like every Beatles album. I was obsessed with the Beatles. Um, and I was buying records at six. The first album I ever bought was a Yellow Submarine because I love the record cover. 
Mm, it's a good cover. Right. And I love, so I was obsessed with the Beatles and I just was like, I wanted to be a drummer. I can't tell you why, but I just sure, like drums, sure. you know, no, that I'm makes still sense. drumming. I drum almost every day. Um, and so this was my, you know, I had like sort of eclectic youth just kind of doing, I didn't play sports. I did race BMX for a little while when I was like 12 or 13. Um, and then when I got into my teens, I was also a dancer and I was a B-boy. So I used to break dance. I got into sewing. I used to like in high school, I was like this, I became like this master sewer. I'm like really good at crafts. I'll tell you a whole bunch of weird shit about me. Um, but that I, stuff, you don't, you still play the drums. Yeah. But is the rest business at this point? No, I mean like, hey, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to just bounce all over the place here and this is going to make no sense to anybody. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm going to, you and I are both elks. 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 Yeah. You're so a master I've, elk. I've been like, I'm not a master. You elk. want to be an exalted ruler one day. Uh, I'm in no rush to be one. And if I'm never one, that'd be okay. You sure? Yes. Where's the ambition? Where's the ambition gone actually? I've had, I have still have lots of ambition, but if I'm going to do it, I have to do it right. And I don't have time for that right now. So... Although I'm very active in the Elks. And one of the things I'm doing now, what I've done is I made all sorts of like products for our Elks. And in fact, I've been designing that stuff and making that stuff like that patch I gave you. I hand sewed a lot of stuff. All the those, fezzes? You brought the yeah, fezzes back? Yeah, all those back. fezzes. I hand sewed those fezzes. <laughs> I hand sewed the patches onto those fezzes at the lodge. Um, and also, if you go there, we have stocking cats. I hand sewed all the patches on those as well. You know, I have a variety of skills. The other thing I used to do, there's too many things that by the time I got, I was always doing stuff, being stimulated. I worked at a hair salon for a long time. People thought they thought I was going to be a hairdresser. Um, of course, everyone thought I was gay as well. Um, well, yeah, you're sewing as well. Yeah, sewing. And I was like this master sewer. My nickname in high school was Cupcake. Nice. Uh, it wasn't nice. It was horrible. <laughs> so mind you, I went to a suburb of Trenton. Yeah. Fairly blue collar, predominantly blue collar. And racially mixed. And if you had any money, you sent your kids to some kind of either Catholic school or you sent them off to private school. Well, my parents didn't have any money. So, like, I was, like, the shortest kid in my class in this very racially, predominantly white and black town. And the kids were rough and they were mean. And I got the, I'm tough as a result. Um, but so then I was doing that. I'm, I'm, I'll try to give you more of this. This is my whole kind of background, creative background. I was trying lots of things. I was like a b-boy, like I said. I, you know, did some theater and stuff. I played the drums on and off throughout school, high school. And then I finally stopped doing it in school. But then when I discovered punk rock, I started putting out a music magazine, hmm. a fanzine. And I was doing that in high school. And I started booking punk rock shows. And I started a little record label. And that was collecting comic books. I was just like kind of all over the place. Just just like any kid absorbing everything, listening to hip hop, listening to the punk rock, making stuff, but not necessarily in a traditional way. And so like when I did end up going to college, which I wasn't even going to go, I didn't know what I wanted to do, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I just knew that I was trying a lot of things and, um, you know, I was just trying to find my way at a different time. And... I wasn't sure if I was going to play. I wasn't sure. And I didn't really particularly feel, I was really good at a lot of things, but I was great at nothing. You know what I was great sure. at? And I didn't want to be 
being organized and being a good businessman. Yeah, I get it. My yeah. grand, my mother used to always say to me, as you know, uh, my mother's Italian, but my father's Jewish. And my mother always used to say to me, that's a little Jewish merchant in you. Cause I was always selling stuff. You mm -hmm. know, I could just tell you like stories and stories about like stuff, all the different influences and peoples in my life and all sorts of interesting. St I had a very interesting childhood and teenage years. Um, right. So being an art collector allows you to, it kind of controls the ADHD in some degree because you can I, bring in all these different. But I'm not an art collector. Sorry, a gallerist. A gallerist. Yeah. You know what happened was I started to, con you can't do everything. And no, no. that's when I opened the gallery, I had to make this commitment because I was having that issue at the time. I was like, am I going to keep making art? I'm like, well, I don't really need to do that. Am I going to be in a rock band? I was like, well, I really don't want to do that because I don't really want I didn't love it enough that I love playing drums and I love doing it on my own terms and playing in my band, which is called Cyclone Static. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hear it's coming to the Williams Center that's soon. Right. That's right. I hear that. That's right. And uh, <laughs> and I just, I really enjoy doing that. Just like I enjoy being at the Elks and making things for the Elks, but I'm not trying to make a living off of it. So as, as I've matured, but when I opened the gallery at 32, I did really focus on one thing. And so for a long time, I didn't do anything but that. And... Was years. that fulfilling to kind of focus in? Sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. Yeah. And ultimately I would never go back to it because it's, it's not yeah. fulfilling to me. It's hard to tell if that multi-pronged approach, which I have as well, is a defect or a strength at times. And sometimes you try to curb it or lean into it. Well, it depends what your goals are. So for me personally – my goal was to do what I set out to do and I did it and I made a lot of sacrifices, huge amounts of sacrifices that I don't think most people would. I don't think knowing you that you would because I just don't think you could have been bothered to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, for not me, for that. For me, it was, yeah. about, it was about ambition and believing something. I had to learn a lot. I learned a lot in that process. And then I set out to do what I did and I did it and I did it to the best of my ability and I was really unhappy in it for a while, even when it was very successful. And then it stopped being so, so successful and it basically got ripped out of my hands, which one of maybe the best things that happened for me. I mean, what I, does that mean? Ripped out of your hands? Oh, it just stopped working. And I kept trying to make like it the, work. Like the natural kind of uh, appeal to the type of aesthetic went away? No, the business changed too much, no longer worked. And in order for me to function in that world anymore, I had to do, I had to compromise myself too deeply, which I didn't want to do. Then it was just really no fun for me. Was there a day where you encountered the art world? Do you know what I mean by that? Like from a, there's doing business as, as, an, as you were doing before with the toys and selling a painting, you know, for under 5,000. And then there's the day where you start going above that. Was there any contrast and change to that? Because I noticed some shift when running my gallery where I started selling things to people who were putting them in shipping containers or whatever, you know, just storage. Well, what's the art world? I don't know. What do you mean by I that? I guess investors, maybe the... To be honest with you, I deal with, I still deal, deal with very big collectors, but they're not investors. They're That's good. They're collectors. I don't really deal with people who are investors and people who are flippers. And I really don't like those people. And within my, I was, 
All things considered fair and equal, I was pretty pure in my business. I went hard and I had a, an amazing run and probably it was highly unlikely to ha what happened is highly unlikely. Um, I don't know. Part of it was luck. Part of it was I was the right place. I was committed. It was a lot of things not to like, I don't want to undermine my, I don't, yeah, I don't diminish, you know, but like. I didn't compromise myself often, and I really don't like people like that. I don't like you if you're listening. <laughs> I can't stand you. I hate those people. Well, what does it look like? Tell them what it looks like. Somebody who doesn't really care about the art, and they're just trying to make money, and they're just dealing with that as a commodity, and I don't like that. That's gross. You think that happens often? Sure, but I don't deal. That's not part of my life. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I know. It's not part of my, Even now, it's not part of my life. Yeah. I mean, I was doing something out of passion and the people collected it were passionate about it. And don't get me wrong. Occasionally I, I deal with, I actually deal with other dealers and at least with them, it's transparent and straight up. There's sure. this sort of like, what it seems to make me think about, it makes me think of like these Wall Street, like sneaker collector type bros who I cannot stand. I cannot stand. Them. So why is it? Is it be, so like for me, I believe it's largely when... I think they're unethical. Well, so they're also not participants. They're spectators. And if I'm listening correctly to your story, they're hustlers. You're participating in the scene, mm -hmm. and then it it naturally, organically becomes profitable, and you're there at the right moment. Not as, well, not, not as simple as that. Well, what I'm saying is. Uh, but yes, but no, those you were participating. You those, knew the people. Via those people don't actually care about it. They're just looking at how can I make money. They're just hustlers. They're on the outside. They're just hustlers. Yeah. It's like stealing in stocks. Yes. And this is, you know, something I care deeply about. And but you also knew people because you were participating in the scene. No, I mean like new collectors. No, I mean the, like the artist early on. Like, yeah, like I'm like one of the four. I'm considered like an OG forefather of pop surrealism, street art. Like I'm one of the oldest dealers. Not that I'm not old, I'm 54, but I've been around the longest. Me and just a handful of other people. I could name them. I know them all. The scene was this big. That is why to this day, Shepard Ferry who you, of course, knew Shepard Fairbanks. Yeah, yeah. We were just emailing today. I could pick, call him right now and be like, hey, Shepard, what's up? He's still my good friend. I don't, I work with him a little, but he's a mega rock star. Yeah. You know, so like I used to represent him and he got huge. And I still have those relationships with all those people because we all came up together. I've known them all half of my life, at least. People like Ron English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can go to his house anytime. They're always inviting me. Jonathan, when you come up, they're actually my friends. So, yes, that's – I was committed early on, but it was – the scene was this big, and I made a lot of sacrifice. I really believed in it. It's organic. It's I, uh, You know, did you ever – did I ever give you my book? Which book? I have a book. There's a book about – You the wrote gallery. the book? No, it was written about my gallery. No, you haven't. It's called Delusional. No. And the reason – I'll give it to you. And the reason it's called Delusional is because I – because – People said I was delusional because- Who's what? the people? Well, Carla McCormick called me delusional. He actually wrote the foreword for this. Who the hell is that? Carla McCormick was a senior editor of Paper Magazine, mm -hmm. and he's also a very well-known uh, art critic. 
curator and music critic. He's very well known. Mm-hmm. Turns out he's a very good friend of mine. And I met him really early on when I was starting, and he wrote this article about me calling me delusional. Which facet of you is delusional in the article? The idea that you could that commodify could, that? That I could commodify the artwork that I was in at the time, this artwork. Nobody thought you could. And I kept at it yeah. for, for years before I started. What was the turning point? Mm. I think the particular turning point specifically, and I always use this as an example, was uh, the second, probably the first year I was into my gallery in New Hope. Now, mind you, I'd already been doing at this like five, six years at this point. Um, I put up a website. I had some guy build me a website and I put an art online. Now, at that point, up until that point, people like people don't buy art online. I put art online. This guy emails me from Texas and buys a $3,000 painting from this artist, Glenn Barr. And that's when it started. Interesting. I hated the fact that 95% of what I sold was online because mm-hmm. I developed no relationships with actual collectors or people. And so they would just get shipped. I would get shipped in, out. I would store things. Of course, I'm in Rutherford, New Jersey, running a gallery. That's going to happen. But that was not hum- human enough to sustain me. You know, I would love to actually know the person. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I am the total opposite. Really? Well, maybe we experienced the opposing. Yeah, yeah, because I got sick of it and I used to sell so much work. I didn't want to deal with my collectors. And there was because you had too many collectors and they were time suck. Mm -hmm. And if you'd be surprised the people who spend the most money from with you want the least amount of time. People spend $500 with you want three hours of your time. And I was peopled out. I used to hide. Well, are you an introvert or extrovert? I'm extroverted, but um, it got to be too much. You know, I had two spaces in New York. I had 10 employees in it for 12 years at least. Every show would be like you wall to wall. You couldn't walk. And the people were constantly hustling me and I didn't like it. And it made me anxious. And insecure and I just didn't want to deal with it. It was what I always wanted. And then I got it and I'm like, this kind of sucks. Of course. And I would hide and I would drink half a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> when did it turn? When did it go downhill? Uh, Probably well, what kind of, I'd say went downhill where we start, we stopped selling as much. People were still showing up. Sure. But work wasn't selling. The whole market was changing. It was becoming more difficult. Uh, it was around 2015. Was that when you were in Mana Contemporary? No, I was still in New York. Is Projects what was Mana Contemporary? Yes. That's and, late and that's a short-lived period, yeah, right? Yeah, I was in Mana for like two years and then like I could just see it wasn't – it just wasn't working anymore. And – Is that an aesthetic thing or a technological thing? It was more of a technological thing. So basically my, my whole take on the gallery industry is that – it doesn't make sense. It's a kind of a longer conversation. I, I would agree from what little I know. So uh, it finally got to the point where it's like, you know, and when you have when you have employees and you leases and things like that, you can't just go like, I'm done. You can't just walk away. You're stuck in leases. You walk away from a lease. You get sued. Blah, 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 blah. And also it's very hard to be like, this isn't working. You take it as a huge failure. So 
um, you know, eventually it just didn't work anymore. And then I took a break from it. Is it over? Would it be accurate to say it's over? What do you mean? What's over? Well, if we have these three chapters, right, loosely speaking, is there a fourth? Four chapters. Yeah, three, four, one, two. I'm using names yeah, four, to be the there, chapters. I'm in, I'm in another chapter, and it's a transitional chapter. But I don't have an – my end goal – I do have an end goal. My end goal is to – and I'm kind of doing it. I mean, right after I closed the gallery, COVID happened, so that kind of changed everything. But uh, my angle, so I basically I represent one artist. I still do online shows. I do a lot of what's called secondary market sales. Mm -hmm. You know, I work on this project and that project. My whole thing is like, if there's money in my account, a lot enough money in my account, and I don't have to bust my ass, then I don't. I don't take large unnecessary risks unless I really believe in them. I do a lot less. I do what I want to do. And I just try to be happy. I kind of feel like I'm semi-retired. I am working on some projects. Uh, for example, like I work, I, I represent an artist named Kum Kum Fernando. Um, who's doing like a lot of big things. Like, honestly, I could work with one artist and make more money than I ever made working with 30 artists. Because the overhead is less, et cetera. You can have one really successful artist that's doing very well. Yeah. Um, and I'm also working with, I have a partner, sort of, so to speak, who's also a very well known curator. His name's Christian Strike, and he uh, was responsible for curating this traveling exhibition called Beautiful Losers, yes. which is a sort of. There's also a documentary, you know? There's a and documentary a book and, and a book, yeah. Are... So my Christian, my friend Christian, sort of, he's the guy behind that. And he's curating a Beautiful Losers too. Oh, yeah, there's two of them? There's going to be a second one. <laughs> and I'm the co-curator. Nice. So we'll see where that goes. Well, I'm at a good point in my life where I don't have to deal with the stresses and I kind of sort of get to make choices about how I want to live. And because I'm not a middle class I don't need to make a shit ton of money. Um, and because I don't come from a lot of money, that's fine. I just, I'm not focused on material things as much as one might think I would be. Um, so early on, you're focused on the ambition and executing the goal. The yes. goal was done. Do you, I'm curious as you get older, does the ambition just go? down or does it just mutate into more kind of um smaller goals yeah you know what i think that this is specific to people for me ambitions about ego only it, is no. that a negative uh for me for my goal was a lot about ego and self in a negative sense yes okay i think so and self-esteem and needing validation and all those things and so from you know, like I regret and like, I shouldn't say I, I don't say I don't regret anything in my life, but I don't really really regret a lot. Sure. I mean, you know, you kind of like uh, wish you're like Jesus. I wish I knew that, you know. But like, I wouldn't have really. I never did anything that I felt was unethical, and like Jesus, I shouldn't have done that. It was more like that was a dumb choice. But I didn't know, and I had to do. It. And if I hadn't done it, I'd always be like, sure, done it. You should always do it. So, but you get beat up that way. You get like yeah. severely injured that way. Yeah. And you have to be 
able to recover from that. So I'm in a different phase of my life. It's more like, um, not to sound all goofy and shit, but that's more oh, yeah, that's the good, yeah. spiritual pursuits, you know? <laughs> so in what sense is it spiritual? Uh, no, I mean like I'm more spiritual in terms of my approach to life, you know, just what does that mean? That means, um, as opposed to material. Well, I was never that materialistic, but like not looking for outside and so much on the outside for people sure. to tell me I'm okay, but looking on the inside and having good, just not chasing notoriety, which I think a lot of creative people sure. do. And I, and so for me, that's and my my ambition is. And I was so hungry. I got hurt, you know? But my ambition now is to, there's nothing I'm not all excited about that I want to chase it like that and take those huge risks. And, you know, without being very explicit about all that, a lot of that stuff, which I won't on this, um, you know, you can get injured sure. in a variety of ways. You can get injured emotionally, you can get injured spiritually, you can get injured financially. Um, you can even get injured physically in a sense of what it could do to your body. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had all that. And I mean, I did, I kind of, I did, I did the best job that I could. So I don't really regret that. I'm like, I don't fucking do that again. Like no way. Uh, and it, there's no point. And I'm, I'm lucky because everything I did allows me to sort of, it's allowed me to sort of sit back, lick my wounds and reassess. Now I don't know where that goes. I'm just finding my way. I'm kind of organic in the way I do things. I became a gallerist by accident. I didn't set out to be like, sure. I want to be an art gallerist. I, I get know. that. I yeah, same. Never. Same. Sort of fell into it. Got pushed into it in a way. And so now I'm just kind of still doing it. I'm I'm like I was when I was a kid, doing trying lots of different things, except the difference now is I actually make a living doing it. So that's fun. So I try to stay right there. And occasionally I'll do big things. That get attention, mm -hmm. but that's not my focus. Now, if I had a lot of money, what would you even do? Uh, I would. I'm really. If I had a lot of money, I'd buy a lot of real estate and I'd set up sort of like an arts complex or something. I'd find that really fulfilling. Mm. Although, there's so a lot of yeah, like, uh, are you a person of service or yes. you're? Yes. So, for all your egoic flaws, I mean. It's not like you did something horribly criminal. <laughs> no, you did. You channeled it in a no, no. Fairly, of course uh, not. Why would it, that's no? Of course not. Did it sound like it by what I was saying? No, the opposite. Um, but sometimes you know, like I think the ego can be good. Like um, you channeled a youthful ego into helping your friends succeed and and build their lives, and in, in the process, you built your life. You know, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, it's but it's hard to have that perspective when sure to always have to, to have that perspective when all sorts of kind of horrible things happen along the way. <laughs> you know, it's like truth is a lot of horrible things happen along the way. Um, well, that's why you need that interiority that religious and spiritual practice allows, um, because the outside world is brutal, and if you don't have that. It's yeah, really hard. You know, I mean, saying that to you, I don't know if that's the thing with you. Like, I my my best friends are, like, not spiritual at all, and I don't really talk about it very much, to be honest with you. But it is what carries me. But how do you build it? So with religion, you have explicit practices typically, right? You know, uh, there's kind of a program to how you're going to get there. But 
I do think acts of service are, are, are something that tends to build it. Uh, well, I come from a family of acts of service. And so my business to some extent was, to some extent was an act of service, although I was getting recognized for it. So there was not completely, you know, obviously not a hundred percent act of service. It was actually surprising by the amount of recognition initially when I, I was like, what the hell? I didn't expect this. Um, and it was really fucking fun. I have created my own spiritual path. Um, I come from a, a very spiritual family. Um, I've been fortunate, uh, not to say my family's perfect in any capacity, and that our lives have been easy and our relationships have been easy. But my mother, I grew up in a very Catholic family, and my mother was somebody who bounced around in different faiths searching for something. I mean, she married a Jewish guy. She dated a bunch of Jewish guys. And she finally got remarried. She married my stepfather, who is a Presbyterian. Mm. So I was raised in the Catholic church, and my grandmother was very much involved in that. And I was like an altar boy and yeah. very traditional. And then my, my mother would send me to Jewish summer camp. And she was like, well, you're half Jewish. Um, although I wasn't bar mitzvah or anything like that. And... And then we sort of observed that a little bit when I was a kid. And then, um, you know, half my family's still Jewish. That's not something that goes away. Um, and then my mother started taking me to the Presbyterian church. And my mother was always, always deeply in search, very spiritually looking to be connected to her faith. And because we were struggling growing up with my my father not being around, my mother being quite frankly being emotionally not so stable, um, her struggling financially, us not having a lot of help with that, my brother and I having emotional issues, you know, like being worrying about like, you know, going to foster care, getting electricity turned off, or something like that, or just like my brother just we were not only were we like poor and little we were different mm -hmm. and so it made it all very difficult so there was a lot of struggle and low self-esteem and right. bullied and all that shit so my mother instilled in me at a very young age this belief in a higher power and having faith mm -hmm. now i don't necessarily believe i'm not I wouldn't call myself a Christian, mm -hmm. although I'll sit around and talk to Christians all day. I got no beef with Christians, um, to be honest with you. Like, There's no reason to. Yeah. No, a lot of people are like, yeah, I have like a lot of really good friends. Or, I have a lot of friends who are spiritual and religious people and I have massive amounts of... I have some of the best people I've met in my life were in the church. Well, it's helpful to go to a place that tells you how to behave every week, you know? Like that's not really so much what I got out of that like, for me personally. <laughs> no, but I think in general that's a good function, right? Like it's hard to be a good person. It's an uphill battle. It's easy to fall into horrible behavior. And if you go to a place where you're listening to someone say you should probably not do this and do this, I think that's helpful. Yeah, you know, I mean you grew up with ethics. I also grew up with a grandmother and a mother who screamed at me, so that's I knew what that was. But like more ethics you know being and also through people around me i actually had good role models of people who were ethical tried to be ethical were yeah. ethical honest hard-working people um but also 
we just talk about this deeper spirituality. It's also stuff that, you know, fortunately for me and my mother continued her spiritual journey. It's something that I always talked to her about as I explore other, you know, different religions and things like that and philosophy. So like she and I can always come back to the same place. We pretty much agree. I don't necessarily, and she's, my mother's not this dogmatic Christian either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like she doesn't care if I believe in Jesus Christ or not. Right. She doesn't care. Um, we just have this overall spiritual belief as a whole in terms of how the universe works. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of a longer conversation, but that's really what gets me through. And that's what I really stay much more focused on these days. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, it's a question of, uh, obviously, you're very involved with the Elks. <laughs> that's right. But And you play in Cyclone Static. But what does a typical day look like? You live not too far from me. That's right. I live about three quarters of a mile. My typical day is boring as fuck. Do you, you hide in bushes and spy on me? Mm-mm. Oh, that would be too My much. beautiful life. That would be too much work. Um, <laughs> I get up at 10 o'clock, maybe. I go to bed at 2. What are you doing oh, well, with all that time? Well, I go to bed at 2 and I get up at 10, so I sleep 8 hours. What are you doing from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m.? I'm getting there, okay? <laughs> I usually wake up. I drink like a pot of coffee throughout the day. I sit in front of my computer. I read the news. Jesus Christ, don't do that. For at least an hour a day. <laughs> uh, and then it's I hop worthless. on my, my computer and I answer emails. And I do, part of my job is just doing the nuts and bolts to admin stuff, which I hate. Part of my life, it's different every day, you know, um, is is being on a let yesterday i was on a phone call with this couple who represent the artist winston smith he's guy did all the dead kennedy's record covers i take a lot of calls i talk to people all over the world zoom meetings and this other thing um it's a lot you know i sell stuff i put stuff up on instagram and facebook i create content i have some people who work for me that i meet with and every and i don't leave the house and every so often I will go over to my storage space in Jersey City and do something there, pack something, move something around. Um, and occasionally I go to an art event. And at some time around later in the afternoon, I might take a nap. Wow. And then I go downstairs and I beat on my drums for like 45 minutes. I might get on the treadmill and run for a couple miles. And once you may we, or may not go to the Elks. I may go hang out at the Elks. My life's pretty quiet these days. You know, like it used to be very, very, very different. So, like a hedonistic, like you were a party animal. I was, but I was, I was, it was hedonistic, but I also busted, I worked nonstop. I ran two yeah, galleries. work hard, play hard. And I used to travel three months of the year and I was constantly going to art events and being seen and, you know, all that crap that you do. So having lived that life, what advice can you give to all those artists out there? Regards, what, like for what? <laughs> No, no, give me something. Give me some wisdom from I always say those this. years. I say I always say try to be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Come on. Seriously. I won't take it. I always say be kind to yourself. That's always what I tell young people coming up. It depends who they are. What does that mean? Explain it. It's just don't beat yourself up. Don't be too hard on yourself. I I, I mean for me the only way I have ever gotten better is a kind of brutality. Yeah, but, you know, beating yourself up isn't productive. That doesn't mean you can't push yourself either. Um, oh, you mean like really? Yeah, just like be really? kind to yourself. doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard, but don't beat yourself up. It's counterproductive. You know, take your time. Don't expect, you know, you're not – egos are 
fragile and hurtful and they're just yeah if you make mistakes move on yeah so like i think you know just go out there do your thing have fun do it because you love it um don't get too try to try to get too caught up in that game um so you're what you say 54 Mm -hmm. how do you imagine the rest of your life playing out It's hard because you know I I I how I'd like the rest of my life to play out. Sure, would, same thing. Yeah, um, it never plays out the way you imagine it. So I know, but you got to imagine, otherwise you're not even anywhere close. That I stay healthy and thin, ish. Finish. I won't because I you know I lost a bunch of weight. I don't me. know. I don't know. I you used to know, didn't you know me when I was heavier? It's like forty pounds. Heavier. I can't see that kind of thing. Um, healthy and thinish, uh, stimulated, financially secure. And continually being able to do the things I want to do. Eventually, I move down the shore and keep snowboarding. I'm going to go move to Asbury, around Asbury Park. Keep okay. playing music. Uh, it would be great if my band took off a little and we got some notoriety from Yeah, hey, you stick with me. I'd Anything's like to do, possible. Do a little touring with that. Um, basically, just be just keep doing all these creative things. And inter- I like to collaborate with people and just do cool creative crap collaborations and just never know what they are and just do what I want, kind of. And just keep going. You ever imagine where you'll die? How you'll die? You're going to be on Asbury on the beach, laying, relaxing? I hope I die like my great-grandfather. How'd he die? The story goes that he put on a suit, he ate a banana, he came downstairs, he sat on the bench, he fell asleep, and he didn't wake up. Like a cat or something. He was like 96. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should think about that. I would love to die that way. I'd love to have my health. I love not to have any physical issues. And just go to sleep one day and I'll wake up. Alone or is there someone watching you die? Oh, well, it'd be nice if I had a partner. You know, I mean, I have a girlfriend right now, but... A cat is on your lap? No. No, you're not a pet person? No. I don't mind having a dog if I had someone interesting. No. Too much responsibility. I traveled. You know, I bounce around too much and stuff. Yeah, you were in Florida for... What? Last year was uh, two months. The year before was four. Pitbull concerts and whatnot? No, I'm going to Mexico next month. Okay. Going, I just set the, I just set it up today. I'm going to Tulum. Oh, my God. For three weeks. Yeah, I've been there. It's nice. <laughs> what was that? Oh, my God. No, I just am thinking back, back to where I was, you know? There's a beach. There's a, there's a globe flag. There's naked... People with a little child hugging. There's people taking ayahuasca and me just observing. Well, I rented a place. And fired, you know. Outside of things a little bit. Yeah. You're like a mile from like the action, like a mile and a half from the beach, like a nice place. No, it's nice. It's nice. And I just be quiet. You know, I don't have to participate in that. No, you don't. So, I don't know that I will be. So, I'm just going there to get some sun. Yeah, I, I get it. Because I don't do well in the winter. Nor do I, but I try to stay grateful for the kind of explosion that occurs when you get out of it. Like, I kind of miss being in school and watching the clock, you know, like high school, and just being like, God damn, when's it going to end? Because my life is very, uh, you know, I build my own structure. Yeah, You don't like get me. the same release when it's when it's your structure, but when someone's imposing like a prison sentence... You explode out the gate, you know? That's fun. I don't miss it. I try not to miss anything. 
I'm not a nostalgic person. Well, you actually have a very similar life than I do in that way because you just kind of make your thing and you do your thing. You're just like, you're just moving through life, dude. Making it's not a hip. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not a hippie thing. It's that potentially we're so unacceptable. Uh, for me, I just never liked being employed by someone whose direction I didn't believe in. And the fact is, I don't believe in anyone's direction but my own in some sense, right? So, like, you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to work harder to serve your very sensitive inability well, to Well, you're work. creative and you're an entrepreneur. So, I'd say you're very similar to me. That's a cool cross-section. Yeah. Uh, people, there's like a douchey connotation with entrepreneur. But to me, I love it. Um I know tons of great Central. entrepreneurs. I know a lot of artists, entrepreneurs, and they are if they want to be or not, they are. And quite honestly, most all success, financially, almost all financially success, successful artists are entrepreneurs. Well, I'll tell you, the artists I wanted to deal with over and over again were quasi business people because right. they had their shit together. That's right. You know, so That's like right. reality is the best artists. I know some great artists who are basically insane and. Oh. I didn't want to deal with that. That's a whole other yeah. podcast. <laughs> we just have that podcast. Just be organized. Get the work in on time. You know, don't email me the next day about how the work's terrible and you want me to send it back. Yeah. You know, just be, you know, be remotely well, stable. There's people that are creative that make work, but that doesn't mean that they can function within the structure of the, if you want to call it commercial sure. world. It's hard. And so people have seen too many movies where they're like, the artist is just painting in their studio and they can just be ever they want and they're just great and self-absorbed and somebody just comes and sells their painting. Everybody wants to believe that. That does not does not do creative people. A, 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 it's a disservice. And what does it even mean to be an artist? And that's a whole other – like I'm on Facebook and I have like 5,000 friends and probably 4,000 of them are artists. So I'm in a – a, a, echo chamber. a total yeah. echo chamber of crybaby artists yeah. and their self-importantness and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why are you more important than a plumber? But you're also supposed to be woke too and so aware, but yet you think you're more important yeah. than a plumber. It's like, give me a break. There is a weird – yeah, I don't even want to get into that. You know, like the things I started to see emerge, this weird – the politics of the art world are rather uninteresting. I'd rather be around – Plumbers and contractors yeah. all day. That's why I'm an know? elk. Yeah. So People out there should be elks. I mean, Have you they're just about elks great people. No, because I never interviewed an elk. But the way I talk about it in the practical sense, it's like walking into a bar where everyone likes you already. You know, that's a weird feeling. It's almost surreal. And they're there for the right reasons. They're good people. They're trying to serve people who need it. And, uh, it's really not complicated. Uh, I don't know how they even have a bad rap in any sense. Well, anyone can make a bad rap about anything or anyone. That's true. But they're benevolent and they protect. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm very happy to be an elk. I could be a much better elk. I hope one day you're an exalted ruler because... There, you know, I'm just not. It's it's a big. Put it to you this way: this is, I'll say this: if I suddenly come into a humongous sum of money, mm-hmm. where I could take a year to be the ER, then I would. And you would put your full energy into it. Then that's right. 
And I already put a ton of energy into it. Yeah. Tons of it because it's fun for me and it's easy. Yeah. That's why I participate. Yeah. It's an interesting, when did you join? How many years ago? It's only been like two, a little over two years. How did you come to do that? Don't you remember our conversation? It was a conversation that me, you, and Pete had. I know, but this is a podcast. So <laughs> you, me, and Pete, your friend, our, our mutual friend Pete, at the time, was like three years ago, I was, is this podcast going on too long? No, 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 no. Uh, let, I had, the, let the people decide that. I had just broken up with my girlfriend, and I was no longer working. I was working. That's when I started working from home exclusively. And I've been living in this town for, you know, I'm in this town 18 years, so however many years that was, 15 years or something. And I was like, let me get more involved in town and what's right here and try to develop some relationships. And because I never really hung out in this town. I would just go to work, go in the city, work in the city, part in the city, et cetera, et cetera. So I was wanted to throw a dance party and we would hang out. We'd hang out in this house. Yeah. Have some beers, chit chat, talk about music, whatever. I was like, let's throw a cool dance party. And I'd been driving by the Elks Lodge the whole time I lived in this town, but never really thought much of it. And I think we had talked about it and I was around there and I ran inside and I looked in. And I was like, I looked in, I saw what it looked like. I'm like, cool. And then not much soon after that, I met some people who were members there and I went to an event. And I was like, this is cool. This is fun. I was like, and I thought, oh, I could put on, and it's before you opened the Williams Center. Yeah. I was like, I could put on punk rock shows or dance parties or whatever. And how much does it cost to join? They're like 70 bucks. A year. And I'm like, what do I got to do? And they're like, you have to say you believe in God. A God. doesn't matter what God. could be Lemmy. There's some really important stipulations coming up right here so you you have to say you believe in god a lot of people don't like that but nobody stipulates what what that god is i think it's a fair rule and then you also have to depending you have to be an american citizen sure and the last thing and it really depends on how you feel you apply if you apply online (laughs) it asks you if you plan on overthrowing the The u.s government yeah but if you do the paperwork which they printed out many years ago and it's floating around all over the place you have to say you're not a communist now this is like 1950s like eisenhower McCarthyism. McCarthy. I'm oh, sorry. You know, like this yeah. whole the when they changed a lot of things. So, look, I'm in the middle of reading a book about this topic, and I think it's a fair thing to ask of people in America at the time. So, those are the three things, and you become a member, you pay your seventy, eighty bucks a year, whatever your lodge costs, and if you want to do something, you can. You can hang, and otherwise, you just show up and you drink, and that's it. Nobody pushes you to do anything. Um, but so that's what happened. That's why I joined just because I was like, oh, before we'll do some parties and stuff. But why did it have such an impact? Well, for me personally, I had this obsession for the longest time with like secret societies and particularly the Shriners. Right. That's and why you like the Fez. So I much. was really into the Fez and I saw the lodge used to have a Fez. And at some point in my life, I was like, I'm going to become a Shriner, which is a Freemason, but they're like the party Freemasons because I love Fezes. I'm a hack guy. Um, 
all these artists I work with would always paint Shriners. And I just like this idea of like this secret society. And should also mention that a lot of people don't realize this, the Elks are for men and women and most other things like the Masons, they're not, they're just for men. There's auxiliary groups for women, but yeah, I forget the name. Um, but in any case, yes, Elks have uh, two genders. It was just really loose and I love the history of it. I started doing the research, and it was originally started in New York by 15 theater people. Drama nerds. Yeah, that's right, drama nerds, and they were called the Jolly Corks. And I was like, this is so cool. And I just realized the potential, which is a, such a much longer conversation of what the Elks can be. And the fact that they are this benevolent, protective order of the Elks, and that they're they're basically, you can go in there and raise money and do anything you want for anyone. I mean, they have their core things they do, but as you, you as a member can raise money for whatever you want. And I like the idea that it's, it's a non-political organization, a non-religious organization. You're not also supposed to talk a about, non, you can't talk about business. You're not supposed to talk about business. You're not supposed to talk about religion. You're not supposed to talk about politics. And right now- That's- we really need yeah, a neutral yeah. place to go. Yeah, yeah. And so all these things, you know, it was kind of like reminding me a little bit, a little bit like my mom dragging me off to the Presbyterian church when I was a kid for community. They had this really great community there, but without all the religion and then you could booze. So like, but it as a whole, the whole Elks organization, which I could talk about ad nauseum, has got so much incredible potential. There's 2,000 lodges in the country. I think there's like roughly 2 million members. And if you join one lodge, you can go to any lodge. It's a great place if you're a young creative or any kind of person. You can like – it's a great place to do anything in there. If you want to do life drawing classes in there, if you want to put on a show, an art show, whatever. That space, you can do whatever you want in it. I think – yeah, in any all that's true. And it, help, it helps disabled people and veterans mostly. So that's most Our lodge. Members. That's right. Now, or all. All lodges focus on – uh, veterans, children with special needs, and youth programs. But as a member of the Elks Lodge, you could be like, I want to focus on, you know, helping dogs with one with three legs. One even better, you know, one or whatever. <laughs> like I, you could you could bring other things. It's I for, yes, I, I have pliable. the zine. I got to show you the zine that I was working on. About a dog with three legs. No. Elks, it's just Elks uh, paraphernalia uh, from like eBay and everything. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like- Different, it's, the it's aesthetic a, history or like- a the, Beautiful. Of the Elks, that's what I was collecting. Yeah. Oh, okay, it's beautiful. It's crazy. Uh, different regions, different signage, different belt buckles. Um, We recommend it. You're not too cool to be do, an Elk. You should do a whole episode on the Elks. With Mike? I mean, you are the elk. You are the do, like. This is an elk. arts and music podcast. That's great. We could do an elk, but the elk, my my dream for the elks that creators get involved with it. My dream for the elks is that it it has a little more of a clear identity in its programming. It returns to like, like I imagine it was very potent early on when those those drama nerds like you can feel it with the ceremony. There was like a clear vision of poetry. I don't know if it was tongue in cheek or theatrical or sarcastic you know like when you go through it it's hard to tell but i feel like it's lost some of its clarity because well what's the average age like 65 61 62 yeah it needs it's like of all the organizations to be suspicious of or institutions this is not one the elks well maybe that's for you to do maybe you that's your job i mean i think one day you know um 
the thing about the Elks is it's pliable. The Elks represents yeah. the – if you go to different lodges, it's going to be different. I've actually never been to a different one. The, the, the Hipster Lodge in New Jersey, the South Orange Elks Lodge. I hang oh, out there boy. all the time. You haven't been? I know. I hang out there all the time. Oh, really? I know what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Hipster Elk? It's like it's full of young people, youngish people, more like probably closer to 40 or into music and stuff. They have like a rainbow flag outside. They, although, and the ER is this guy, Dan, he's 38 now. And he like, he played in a rock band and just, I don't know. It's actually, it's, it's, I'll check it out. It's pretty great. They throw fun parties. Literally like, don't get me wrong. I love my lodge, but that lodge is a blast. Uh, it's a fun one. I'll check it out. Check it out. If you're around South Orange, New Jersey. But you can't go into an Elks Lodge unless you're with another elk. Or you know the secret Or you signal. are an elk. Now, and, and every elk can bring in like... Twelve? Nine right? people. Nine? Yeah, so you're always a party when you're... You're like, hey, if you're with your friends, you'd be cool. You're like, hey, come on. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. You got any jokes for me? I tend to end it with a joke. No, I don't. You're not a jokester? No. Really? Like a joke? You're like a man who would have a... No, I mean, I'm silly and I make jokes, but like I make, I say stupid stuff. Contextual. Yes, exactly. But I don't really have a joke. That's all right. You want to tell one? No, no, it's not about me. It's about you. This podcast. One day, you can interview me. What's this podcast called? I can't tell you that yet. Yeah. Sorry. So yeah, man. That's all I got. That's your life. That's your whole that's your whole goddamn life. That's a little bit of it. I feel like we covered it all. You know? You're currently in a band? Cyclone Static. Uh-huh. You got any shows coming up? We don't, but you know what we do have? I'll tell you. We have a four-song EP coming out, uh-huh. and that'll be released in April, which I'm very excited about. And the title of the EP Go ahead. is called Cave Pop, <laughs> and the subtitle is Dance Songs for Primitive People. Wow. And where can they find that? Well, when it comes out, it'll be on all streaming services. All of them. You know, that'd be Spotify, Apple Music, whatever is out there. It'll also, you can look us up on our Instagram account, our Facebook account, and also on, what's the other music? Mm, TikTok. No, no, no TikTok. Who does Mike work for? Fucking SoundCloud. Also, no, it's not SoundCloud. No, you know what? I he works for SoundCloud. He does work for SoundCloud. <laughs> we don't have stuff on SoundCloud. It's Bandcamp. Camp. Bandcamp. It'll be on. And Bandcamp. you got any shows coming up or no? Right now, no, because I'm going away. But we should probably have something in March and April. I mean, I'm trying to work with uh, US Chaos right now, but it's taking some time. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, you should have him come up here. We'll talk. get there. Oh, I don't even know him, but I would Jack, talk to him. Jack Gibson. Jack Gibson. The calling him out. Do you know about US Chaos? I don't at all. They were a legendary old school North Jersey punk rock band. I saw them play. When I was 16 years old at City Gardens in Trenton, which was this big, famous punk rock music club, open up for this famous British band, 999. And the funny thing is, Cyclone Static opened up for 999 four, year, four or five years ago as well. So how much longer are you going to drum? As long as I can. Yeah, how do you keep those arms in shape? You just play all the time. 
Yeah. Yeah, you just you should you should play you should sit down and play at least three days a week for like twenty five minutes. Sure. Yeah. It's well you a, got more time. I mean, I don't it's know. It's about your muscles. Like, you know, I sit down, I usually I'll play it for at least a half an hour. I try to play forty five minutes. You got a whole house, no one to bother you. That's right. I might that I've never seen. Yeah, you should come by my house sometime. Um I didn't mean to have you guys over. I have like, you know, my man cave downstairs. I got a three bedroom, two bathroom. In a house. man cave, you own the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean Cave Pop? Is that where you make the cave pop? No, it's not. We 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 played in a, well, I don't practice it. I practice my drums in the house, but I won't have a whole band, it's too loud. But the idea with cave pop, I think I have the exact, exact, exact same version of that um, <laughs> hat. Uh, the idea of cave pop was my band is sort of very 90 sounding grunge, right? And while we were playing this band, I was playing what I felt were very tribal beats, but also very dancey beats. Mm-hmm. And I kept feeling like we were a caveman. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was listening a lot to this band, Idols, who plays very the drummer plays is really primal. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this reminds me of cave, Caveman Pop. So I was like, going to go with Caveman Pop. My kids, friends, kids were like, no, go with Cave Pop. Cave Pop is better, yeah, yeah. It's like K-pop. K-pop. I get we're it. We're riffing on it. Yeah. But so then, you know, it might be like, oh, is this a dance album? Because it's dance songs for primitive people. But it's like grunge is Cave Pop, essentially. Yeah. If you think you it, find it, just, it in a cave, I think. It's just another, like, term you could use for it. So I decided, I thought, ah, it'd be a good title to give the writer something to write about. And in respect to the latest Jonathan Levine projects, still call that? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Where would that be found? Oh, com. You can look up my website. You find us on Instagram. And, and what are you Facebook. working on? Uh, I mean, the site changes slowly. Right now, I am working on releasing... Um, Oh, next month I'm doing an online exhibition with Winston Smith. Okay. The guy who did the Dead Coverty, Kennedy's record cover. He's the pettibone of the Dead Kennedy. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. He's a very historically significant guy. Um, it's a great logo. Yeah. And he, he's done like other people like Green Day and like lots of mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, and stuff for the New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. But then after that, I am releasing four... Uh, addition of four sculptures by this artist, Kum Kum Fernando, I represent. And right after that, we are going, he's going to be, he was commissioned by Coachella to do three 70 foot tall sculptures. So we'll probably release some stuff in conjunction with that. Kum Kum Fernandez. Yeah, for the K. K U M, K U M. He is Sri Lankan, but he lives in Vietnam. Right on. So that's the projects immediately. My public outfacing projects that I'm working on, public outfacing. Because there's always stuff going on behind the scenes. In the background. That's right. Like elks. Elks. Well, you know, I tell you what, you know, I don't know the elks are going to hear this. I didn't mention this, but I'm trying to start a company making cool elks swag. That sounds illegal. It's not. That sounds like business. Yes, as long as it's not like under my name. What do you mean? So you're doing Elks? No, you get, uh, I shouldn't talk about this too much, but basically you get. It's top secret. You get, you have to, you get licensing through them. Really? Yeah. But then they have strict graphic design restrictions? Pretty loose about it. That's good. That sounds cool to me. But you have to get licensing for it. You got to rise up the Elks. 
That's what I'm trying to do. You got to bring them back up. That's right. I don't know when the peak of the Elks was, but... It's probably like... Peak of the Elks was probably like 1920s, 1930s, 40s. Makes sense. The the, the peak of what they call the golden age of um, fraternities, fraternal organizations, sure, sure. was like the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. You know, mid that yeah. was the golden age of the Elk, of, of, of all those organizations prior to television and all that, you know. Yeah, when people went out and did shit. Yeah, they had to actually see each other face to face. Pre-World War One, probably. That's right. Yeah. But even World War Two. I mean, this Elks, this lodge was banging up until the 80s, even the 90s. No, we got to work on it. You got to show up, bro. I know. You know, as I'm a matter of saying, fact, yeah. when I'm done here, I think I'm going to go to the Elks Lodge. Who's bartending? No clue. It is Wednesday night. Could be a variety of people. Could be Jimmy. All right, maybe could uh, be Murph, could be Donna. Maybe some of the listeners will meet you there. That's right. What's the address? What is it? Something Ames Avenue. <laughs> this isn't live, is it? No, no, we yeah. don't even know. It's Ames but, Avenue. But we'll see you there. Yeah, we'll see you at the Elks Lodge. Ooh, <laughs> I mean, what's Elks Lodge? What do they make? Ooh, they make some noise. Some weird noise. Yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Mingja Chen. Next up, we have Matt Locke.